Our reading tonight is from Hebrews chapter 10, starting at verse 32. It's found on page 1209 in the Church Bible and page 1832 in the large print. <clears throat> so Hebrews chapter 10 from verse 32. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscations of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere, so then when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come, and will not delay. And But my righteous one will live by faith, and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commanded for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what, was, what is seen was not made out of what was visible. This is the word of God. Thanks, Vera, very much. Uh, well, isn't that a great passage? We're going to come and look at that um, together tonight. Um, let me pray for us as we look at it together. Lord, we read in your word that it's through the encouragement of the scriptures that we might have hope. We thank you for how this passage will encourage us tonight as we look at the great cloud of witnesses who've gone ahead of us. And as we reflect on the men and women of the Reformation who themselves went ahead of us, please, with their examples, help us to stay faithful to you in this generation. I pray that you would speak to us through this passage, through the things that we think about together tonight through the testimonies that are shared that we might be built up and sent out from here ready to serve you this week amen great well this is uh, number four the last one in our little reformation series and then um, nathan elliott's going to be taking us back into two timothy as we continue that next week i believe and we're going to think tonight about what does it look like for us to um, trust in our sovereign god as in a, in a sense the Reformation continues today, what would it look like for us to be continuing in that work? And I just spent some time this week reflecting, and I hope that you've enjoyed a little kind of look back in history. Whether you're a history buff who loves that stuff or thinks, I hate history, I hope it has been helpful um, for you for a few reasons. I hope it's helped you think about your worldview. A worldview is really a kind of a set of lenses through which you see the world. And I hope as We've thought about the Reformation. It's just challenged you to think a little bit about the way that you view the world 
And maybe the Reformation has helped you think a bit about the way that you engage with the world today. I hope it's also given you confidence that evangelical faith, that's biblical faith, as the reformers stood for it, is actually historic faith. It's nothing new. It's deviations from the word of God um, that are the things that are perhaps newer. Um, But actually, Reformation faith, the faith that we hold true in this church, is historic faith. And it's really encouraging to look back in history and see where we've come from. See the legacy that has been built before us by men and women who've stood faithful. And I hope that you're encouraged that the statement of faith that we hold to in the church is a historic statement of faith, rooted in historic truths. Um, I hope as well we've seen that kind of theological debate is never carried out in a vacuum. This wasn't a load of clever theologians in some theological college pinging ideas around. The Reformation was a very robust period of history where these big issues were worked out in really practical ways. So I hope we can see that all theological debates should be worked out in a context. And as we've understood perhaps a little more of the context of the 16th century, it's helped us grasp why these issues mattered so much then. I hope we've seen as well, and particularly if you were to study the life of Martin Luther in any more detail, I hope you see that um, true reformation is about a reformation of the heart. It's not about ascribing to a sense of intellectual propositions. It's about a change in here. And the thing that's the most amazing is that for some of these great reformers who were incredible brains, what was more incredible was their hearts. Reformation is really about a heart change, an obedience towards God, a love for him and his word. And I hope too, particularly last week as we looked at the Oxford Martyrs, I hope you've been inspired by the sacrifices that men and women were prepared to go to um, to build the legacy and the foundations on which this church and many churches continue to be built. And I hope that as we hear a few little testimonies tonight of people who are in a sense continuing to seek to be faithful to God, that those sacrifices will encourage us. Um, Stick your hand up if you like going to the beach and you love uh, a nice windy walk on the beach where the, the wind is whistling through your hair. Some of you perhaps, maybe some of you don't. As you picture the last time you were at a beach with the wind whistling through your hair, remember the quote that C.S. Lewis once gave that I spoke about in the first week of the Reformation. He, he challenged us to keep the sea, fresh sea breeze of the centuries blowing through our hair. Just as we like the wind to blow through our hair on the beach. He says, keep looking back because church history actually really matters and it doesn't need to be dry and boring and it doesn't need to be something that just students in a theological college engage in. Keep letting history blow through your hair because it helps you recognize where you've come from and it'll help you in a direction of where you're heading. Well, come, come with me to Hebrews chapter 10. It's a wonderful chapter in the, in the Bible. And I really just want to sort of walk us through the passage and make a few comments. Uh, and then in the light of that, give us um, five short practical applications through the whole series of the Reformation. Uh, so come to chapter 10, verse 35, where the writer says, Do not throw away your confidence it will be richly rewarded it's easy when you see that word confidence isn't it to suddenly think about self and you either think well I'm a confident person or I'm really not a confident person but the confidence here that the writer's speaking about isn't a confidence you have in yourself it's a confidence in the gospel and it's the gospel that gives us confidence this is why because the gospel lifts us out of ourself it's not about us the gospel's all about Jesus and the gospel is not about something that we do. It's something about he, what he has done in the past. So where the writer here says, don't throw away your confidence, he could have or she could have said, cling to what you know is true. Cling to the gospel. 
But if we forget the gospel and our confidence is thrown away, uh, just cast your mind back to a time at school when you were in the school play. The last time I was in the school play, I was car in the jungle book. I had to sing the solo, trust in me, uh, and sound like a snake. Well, I can't sing and I don't sound like a snake, so it was pretty awful. But can you imagine when you were at school in the school play and you forget your line? It's the only line you've got and you forget it. What happens? When you forget, your confidence falls through the floor, doesn't it? And then your teacher's on the front row and prompts you, or your mum who's gone through the, the one line you had a million times with you, just whispers from the back, and then it comes back, and your lines come back, and you lift your head with confidence, and you carry on. When we forget, our confidence goes through the floor. But when we remember, we stay confident. And then the writer goes on, verse 36, and says, you need to persevere, so that when you've done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. And we persevere in the Christian life, not by putting our fists together and trying harder. We persevere by trusting. And that's exactly what the quotes in verses 37 and 38 are all about. In just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. This is a quote from the book of Habakkuk who was a prophet in the Old Testament. And the book of Habakkuk, if you were to sum it up, is all about waiting when you can't see the outcome. The big line that Habakkuk keeps repeating in his little book, how long, O Lord? He's desperate for God to rescue him. He's desperate for recovery and release. And he's having to wait and to keep trusting what God has said, even though what he sees is God not working. So perseverance is about trusting, which is why the writer refers to the book of Habakkuk here. And then on the back of all that, we get into chapter 11. And chapter 11, verse 1, is the famous passage about what faith is. Faith is, you notice, confidence in what we hope for. Confidence in something that we hope for and assurance in what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Confidence and assurance. That is what faith is. Faith is not a blindfolded leap into the dark, some wishful thinking. Christian biblical faith is confidence and assurance. And what follows is this wonderful, as is often called, the Hall of Fame in Hebrews chapter 11. But here's the thing that people often misunderstand. These men and women who are outlined here as examples in the book of Hebrews aren't there because they were incredible people. Some of them did some amazing things, but each of them also fell and messed up. They're here because the one thing that joins them together is that they displayed faith in God. It was his strength that helped them. Let me give you a couple of examples. Have a look at verse 8, Abraham. When he was called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, he obeyed and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. That there is a picture of chapter 11, verse 1, isn't it? Confidence in what he hoped for and assurance of what he could not see. Uh, Well, look at Moses, verse 26. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. Confidence in what he hoped for and assurance of what he could not see. And if you go for every example in Hebrews chapter 11 and then refer it back to Hebrews 11 verse 1, you see chapter 11 verse 1 being worked out in these examples. Confident in what we hope for and assured or certain of what we cannot see. 
See, confidence in the gospel is what helps us as Christians, as churches, to persevere when the going gets tough. But I want you to see now how the whole thing flows together, because if you just move forward to chapter 12, after we get this wonderful list of people whom God has used, we get this wonderful rallying cry by the writer who says, verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, and that's an utter encouragement to us, isn't it? You and I don't have to live the Christian life on our own. There are many, many faithful men and women who've gone behind us, before us, and there are many who will come after us. We're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. And so we're called to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Doing what, verse 2? Fixing our eyes on Jesus. I got you earlier to cast your mind back to being at school in the school play. When you forget your line, you lose your confidence. When you remember your line, your confidence comes back. Cast your mind now back to sports day. And you're running in that race, the egg and spoon race or the one race. And guess who was at the finish line? Mum or dad? And as a runner, you have to throw off all the stuff, the baggage. You can't run with your rucksack. You can't run with your tracksuit on. You can't run holding your maths textbook. You leave it to one side. You put on your trainers and you run. And if you were a little boy or a little girl at school, what did you run for? The finish line and mum and dad, who was going to give you a massive hug. And whether you came first or last, they didn't care. But you ran, fixing your eyes on them. And what do we learn about Jesus, verse 2? As we run the Christian life fixing our eyes on him, we read that he is both the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. He's the one who called you to serve him, and he's the one who will help you to continue to serve him. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. I find this verse really, really important because when the Christian life gets difficult, we can always remember that God is not calling us to live a life that he has not lived himself in the person of his son. Consider what Christ went through and how single-minded he was fixing his eyes on his father and what his father called him to do. And that was the thing that enabled him to cry out in the garden, not my will, but yours be done. And so here where the writer says, fix your eyes on Jesus, you're fixing your eyes on one who's gone ahead of you. Jesus is part of that great cloud of witnesses. And he's calling us to not grow weary or lose heart, but to be faithful to him. So maybe that's a, a little passage you come back to and you could dwell on. But as perhaps you cast your mind back to the Oxford Martyrs last week, there's loads in that passage, isn't there? And in the earlier parts, which Vera read to us about how we can persevere in opposition. But I want to give us five, um, each will be quite brief, five little practical applications where I've tried to pull together some of the things we've been looking at uh, in this series on the Reformation and just anchor some of the lessons we've learned in things that are really practical that might help us as we seek to serve God. And here's the first one. Keep the gospel central. I guess one of the main reasons we've got to keep the gospel central is because the gospel isn't a kind of a product or an idea out there. The gospel's Jesus. And who is Jesus? Jesus is a demonstration of the incredible commitment and love that God has for you and for me. 
We keep the gospel central because the gospel is what reminds us of how infinitely valuable you are. Infinitely valuable. And it reminds us how much God was prepared to give up to come after you and pursue you in love. If you think about your own testimony, what lengths did God have to go to to save you? Some of you will be chuckling in your inside because you're thinking, I was a right rat bag and I was a million miles from God. He had to go to great lengths to rescue you. He had to go to great lengths to rescue me, but he went to those lengths because he loves us. Think about what we've learned in this Reformation series. What lengths did some of the reformers have to go to to try and preserve these truths of the gospel? Many of them were burnt alive, hung. But they went to those legs because they saw in the gospel the incredible love that God has for his people. So we keep this gospel central because it's a display of the commitment God has for us. And we keep it central because, as I've said a few times, the gospel, again, is not a a set of intellectual beliefs. It's very robust. Uh, You may not know this. Martin Luther had five children. Two of them were daughters. They both died at a very young age. Martin Luther was able to say with confidence at the deathbed of his second daughter who died, she will rise again at the last day. But it's the gospel that Martin Luther fought for that wasn't just an intellectual proposition up here. It grasped his heart and it had a robust reality. He knew that the gospel gave his daughter hope in death. So he he held to these theological truths, but when he lay by the bed of his dying and then finally dead daughter, those gospel truths kicked in and they made a massive difference. It wasn't all intellect and theory for Martin Luther. The gospel made a difference when he was grieving. That's why we must cling to the gospel. And we cling to the gospel too, and Martin Luther was probably the the greatest proponent of this in in the Reformation. Uh, You might have heard of what what people describe as the sacred-secular divide, the kind of, I've got my sacred part of my life, my quiet time, my church involvement, and then everything else. And Martin Luther tried to bring the two together and say, no, all of life should be impacted by the gospel. All of our life is sacred. Everything we do matters to God. And so we keep the gospel central because the gospel is about all of life. And if if there's one thing you take away from this series, then take away how much these men and women of the Reformation fought for the gospel. And we must never ever budge from those truths. Kind of, kind of linked to that, number two, is know the assurance that the gospel brings. Uh, one of the battles that was going on uh, between the Protestants and the Roman Catholics during the Reformation was that many of the Roman Catholics were saying, you reformers who've got this great assurance of forgiveness from God and life after death, they claimed that that was presumptuous. How come you have so much confidence? It's just too easy to receive a gift of forgiveness and life. And that's why there was all this kind of work to earn salvation in part. Hence confessions, hence the priestly intermediaries, hence penance and the indulgences. We've looked at this in previous weeks. If you think about it, human effort is hardwired into all of us. We want to earn it because nothing in life is for free. And so when God in his love holds out a free gift of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness that he offers, we really struggle to take hold of it. We really do. And even when we have taken hold of it, if you're honest with yourself, if you're anything like me, there'll still be things in your heart where you want to earn it. You want to prove yourself. You want to be good enough for God. You don't want to be a failure. But the gospel and the reformation help us to bring great assurance that it is indeed faith alone. I haven't talked about this in the series, but the Reformation has been summed up with these five Latin phrases. 
They're famously called the five solas. Sola is a Latin word that means alone. Fide there, faith. Gratia, grace. Christo, Christ. Scriptura, scripture. And Deo, God. And so when these, these ideas were put together, if you want to sum up the Reformation, you could sum it up in what is referred to as the five solas. Robust Christian reformed faith is faith alone. I'm saved through faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, scripture alone for the glory of God alone. And the significant thing in those five solas is the word sola, alone. Because people, you and I often will want to add to what Christ has done. And the Reformation says there's nothing you can add to the perfect sacrifice. See, there's a big difference, isn't there, between behavior and status. My behavior will change as a Christian as I become more Christ-like and the Spirit of God changes my heart. That will change, but my status before God can't change. Because when he looks at me, he says, Mark is a child of God. My behavior can change, but my status never does. Once I've put my trust in Christ and his righteousness has been gifted to me, when God looks at me, he sees Christ and that status never changes. But then God gets to work on my heart and changes my behaviours and my attitudes. Know the assurance that the gospel brings. Um, third little application. Again, this is not a very obvious one, but I hope that the Reformation has encouraged us to sit under the word of God. Um, I'm really convicted of this. When I'm preparing to preach, I'm really convicted. Preaching is not an exchange of information. Preaching is about having an encounter with God. We come to church not just to have more information that fills our minds, but for us to encounter God, for him to speak into our life, to challenge us, um, to encourage us. So take a, a famous verse, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, where Paul speaks to Timothy and says, All scripture is God-breathed, that means inspired by God, and is useful for teaching and correcting, rebuking and training. Now imagine most of us love the word of God when it teaches us and when it trains us and we thank God for it. But here's the question, do you equally love the word of God when it rebukes you and when it corrects you? Because if the whole of the word of God is inspired by God and what Paul says is true, then the word of God should just as easily teach us and train us as it should rebuke us and correct us. But it takes humility, doesn't it, to sit under the word of God and let the word of God challenge us and rebuke us. It's easy to sit beside the word of God or even above the word of God. But the reformers said, no, sit under the word of God. And even when you can't see, even when it doesn't feel like this is the way you should go, trust that God is sovereign. And this is what the reformers really fought for. You look at this little Calvin and Hobbes cartoon. Maybe that's a reflection of our hearts sometimes. I don't want God to change me. I definitely don't want him to rebuke me, to challenge attitudes in my heart, to reveal to me where I can be proud, but I need him to. And so maybe as you think about what it means to sit under the word of God, you can remind yourself of those wonderful words of Martin Luther who said, my conscience is bound by the word of God. Remember when he was forced to recant his... 95 theses and he said I can't because my conscience is bound by the word of God I sit under it and I can't disagree with it the reformers are an amazing example of sitting under the word of God and this is what our generation needs is men and women who will continue to sit under the word of God because 
People everywhere are trying to change the scriptures. And we need to have a theological conviction, not just of what's in the scriptures, but what the scriptures are. Because if we're tempted to change them, then we don't understand what they are. Because you cannot change words that have been inspired by God. And that's what the reformers held true to. The fourth form is uh, trusting in God's sovereignty. I'm just going to uh, flick through a few of the examples, the sort of stories I've told through this series. But think about Wycliffe, who had a passion to get the Bible in English into England. Remember he smuggled 16,000 copies of his English Bible in? And remember at the time Henry VIII was the king and he had banned English Bibles? But there was that wonderful prayer of Wycliffe. Lord, open the eyes of the king of England. And two years later, what happened? Henry VIII changed his mind and declared by law that a Bible had to be placed in every church up and down the country. An amazing example of the sovereignty of God. Well, think of um, Bloody Mary, Mary I, who, who, who set out as a, a Roman Catholic uh, queen to crush the Reformation and the Reformers and the Evangelical faith. But it couldn't thwart God because God is bigger than Mary I ever could have been. So think of the examples we looked at last week. Latimer, when he was burning alive in Oxford, just down the road, And he called out to his friend Ridley, today a candle has been lit that shall never be put out. And it's never been extinguished because God is sovereign. You think of Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Book of Common Prayer and how influential that has been, particularly in the Anglican Church, for ordered worship, biblical worship, a wonderful resource that's been used all through the centuries. God is sovereign and inspired Thomas Cranmer to write that BCP, the Book of Common Prayer, when he did, in the context he did, because God knew how it would be used in the centuries that would come after. And then you can think of, and we haven't looked at this, people like William Wilberforce, John Newton, and how influential they were in the abolition of the slave trade. They were directly influenced by the Reformation. So too was John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress, just over in Bedford, heavily influenced by the Reformation. You think of the Wesley brothers who written great hymns and preached, George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards over in America. These were men who were deeply influenced by the reformers. And so the legacy of the Reformation goes on in all these names that we may have heard of. But the legacy is continued because God is utterly sovereign. And the work that he did during the Reformation, he is continuing today. And so we need to give thanks that he is indeed sovereign. And finally... I hope as one application from this Reformation series that you and I are better prepared to recognize and then to live out the fact that discipleship can be costly. When we did the Daniel series, and I did this with Buckingham a couple of weeks ago, I asked us to think about what does it mean to have faith in Christ? And one of the big things it means is to have allegiance to him. A fierce, robust loyalty to say, I'll always put you first, whatever the cost is to self. Because I recognize how fiercely loyal you have been to me. Um, We haven't looked at John Calvin, who's a famous French reformer, but you may have heard of Calvin's Institutes. Uh, Calvin was a a massive brain, and when he wrote his Institutes, the purpose of it was really to help people to think about how the gospel works out in every sphere of life. And I'm going to put on the screen Calvin's Institute 1.2.1. I'm going to read it to us. This is amazing. For until men and women feel that they owe everything to God, that they're cherished by his fatherly care, and that he is the author of all their blessings, 
so that nothing is to be looked for away from him. They will never submit to him in voluntary obedience, no. Unless they place their entire happiness in him, they will never yield up their whole selves to him in truth and sincerity. It's challenging, isn't it? But what he's saying is until a person does this with their life and totally surrenders to God, then they're not really living the Christian life in the way that God would want. Of course, this is a lifelong journey, a process as God works in our heart. It's the process of discipleship as we help one another. But this is the challenge to say, Lord, am I able to put you first above everything else? Am I prepared to count the cost to give everything in this life now to serve you because I recognize that you've done everything to serve me? And that's why discipleship can cause division. We looked at that passage last week where Jesus talked about, I've come to divide. He knows that the Christian gospel will divide and sometimes being faithful to God will cause division. It's always worth asking, what do I owe to the person I disagree with? How can I learn from them and I love them? But sometimes disagreement is healthy. Sometimes disagreement is necessary. We just need to do it in a godly way. And the reformers, many of them, model to us how to disagree, how to stand firm on our convictions, but to treat people as people. And maybe we've got a lot we can learn from them in that regard. But as we finish, before we hear just some very short testimonies, would you just come back to Hebrews chapter 12? Because as we're being encouraged to the costly nature of discipleship, let me again remind us of these wonderful words from Hebrews chapter 12. Since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What or who was the joy that was set before Jesus? You were. You are the joy that was set before Christ. And when he went to the cross, he was thinking about you. Remarkably, he was thinking about me. We were the joy that was set before him. And he went to the cross, scorning its shame, because he loves you passionately. And so if there's one thing you can take away from the Reformation, may it be, as you look at the gospel, a deep, deep recognition of the extraordinary love that God has for you. And the incredible lengths he was prepared to go to for you. And as we continue in costly discipleship, may we be encouraged to trust in the sovereignty of God. To sit under the word of God. To know the assurance that only the gospel can bring. And therefore to keep the gospel central. Because if we do that, then this church will always stand. But as we finish, I just want to come back to that wonderful words of that, the song we just sang. And let me pray these words for us as we close, as we seek to go out and build on the legacy of the Reformation and continue to be faithful to Christ. Lord, we pray that our life's refrain would be this, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Please, Lord, would you help us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow your Son. And we thank you that you who call us to do this are faithful. 
and you will help us. Amen.